Great. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, we're going to jump straight into questions now, and I would reiterate my plea to ask brief questions so we can get as many people as possible in. Um, questions rather than speeches. There is a microphone on both the floor and in the balcony. Wait for it to come to you, both so we can hear, and also because Conway Hall are recording this, so it'd be nice to have your voice on there. Um, right, so, go. Questions. Caroline, you pick. Yeah, I know, I'm waiting for people to put their hands up. Um, lady down here. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Angela O'Shea. I'd like to ask the panellists. Um, Mr Gove has issued a new national curriculum. It's as dull as dishwa uh, dishwater. What would you have in the new national curriculum? Thank you. Right, who wants to kick us off? Um, well, I'd, I'd have... Um Politics first. I'd I'd have a lesson that ex well at least one lesson that explains to everyone how the voting system works because most you know I've met tons of people who don't know and I, the only reason I know is because it was part of my history A level um, and yeah a lot of people don't know how first past the post works and once you tell them they'll go oh that's really unfair actually um, <laughs> which is probably why they don't teach it um, so. <laughs> I'd, I'd teach politics, I'd teach feminism, um, but not just feminism, kind of um, all aspects of equality I think are important. I think, you know, like I said before, sex and relationships education, unfortunately, they were just debating that in Parliament and it unfortunately didn't get amalgamated into the national curriculum. Um, so those are the three things I'd have on it. Art I, yeah. as well. Art. Keep me arts. I think, like, just building on what Rhiannon said as well, in sex, sex education, it would be um, so much more beneficial to have um, the relationship education that she mentioned earlier. Um, because, for instance, like, I grew up in a household with a lot of domestic violence, and um, I really um, would have appreciated having education that told me what a normal relationship looked like and um, what was abusive and what wasn't. And I think um, that's something that's so important to me. I would definitely have that on the curriculum. Can I risk getting pelted with rotten eggs by saying that Michael Gove has done something right? Ooh, sorry, uh, sorry. But um, he's introduced... He <laughs> 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 sorry, I'll go and sit in the stocks after this. But he's, um, he's introduced coding to the national curriculum, computer, mm. more computer, emphasis on computer science. And one of the really big problems, uh, the tech industry is incredibly sexist. Mm -hmm. And there are very few, like, games, which I write about a lot, they reckon that it's about 6% women. And actually, that really is reflected in the, in the themes that you see in games. So what would be fantastic is, and it's a great creative industry for the UK. So his emphasis on that is good. More of that, I would really like to see. Mm. Victoria. Yeah. Um, well, so I suppose what I'd think most about would be the kind of um, standard subjects that we've got. I mean, the history curriculum, we all know just how regressive and backward-looking Mike Gove's ideas are. Sorry, I'm assuming everyone <laughs> agrees with me. But, but, you know, <laughs> but we all want to do. Um, but it, it's this, um, you know, his idea of a narrative and it's, it's all chronological and great names. And the other day we were looking at, we've got some Ladybird bird history books and we're looking at the great names they list on the back and a ladybird book from the 1970s has more women in it than michael Gove's history curriculum <laughs> and i think the real issues with the way that that's shaped children's mm. ideas of what matters who changes the world who affects the world and how it's who made the world the way it is today and i think that's um that is a real concern for me because i think um there is this kind of feeling with a lot of women 
And girls who are, who are learning history kind of, well, what did women actually do? Did we just sort of sit in the background for a long time? And I think, um, and women's history seems a very specialised area. And I think um, the way that Michael Gove wants to restructure it is, is really bad for getting people to think critically and to realise that people affect the world in different ways. Mm. Um, Do you know? Yeah, um, it's a very good question. And um, beyond saying we should have more lessons on the Commune of Paris and the works of the Croatian performance artist Sanja Ivakovic, I'm not sure I've got an answer. <laughs> um, both good answers. <laughs> I would gladly have done GCSEs on both of those things. Um, I think actually what I kind of, what I wanted when I was at school, and I only realised this after I'd left school, uh, was that it wasn't so much what I was taught that I felt was the problem, it was the way I was taught to think. At secondary schools, um, there was very much an emphasis on learning what you were told were facts and reproducing them in exams. And it was only really once I got to sixth form, I did, um, I did A-level and then degree in history. And it was only really once we got to sixth form that we did any serious investigation, you know, more than like a week, of the idea of historiography, of the idea of looking at sources uh, and critiquing them and basically learning how to challenge the ideas that we receive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the main change I'd like to see in the way education works in this country. It's a more kind of pedagogical issue, more than what the content is, although those two things would obviously... Uh, have a kind of symbiotic relationship. Um, um, I would, take us? Yeah, I would destroy the exam system and get rid of PE and teach every <laughs> kid how to build a computer from scratch. Um, apart from that, I, I, I have problems with the school system in general, but I can't... Um, I, I think what FFB has suggested is, is a very, very good idea. Also, um, sorry, um, <laughs> I went to school under Section 28 mm -hmm. uh, in the late 90s, and um, I don't know what the situation is now in terms of teaching about kind of LGBT and queer stuff and gender variance, sexual diversity. We had, uh, under Section 28, we had an hour on homosexuality, nothing on gender diversity, but an hour on homosexuality, uh, in which it was, uh, it was under the banner of religious education, firstly. Um, <laughs> so that's how the argument was framed. And um, our RE teacher, uh, said, you know, very faltering, just said, look, we're going to, um, well, we're going to watch a video, and um, the two boys in this video, well, um, they go camping, and, um, <laughs> and uh, well, they're, they're, they're homosexual, and, and then he moves on. And, what uh, was this video? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure, we might have been carry on camping. Type of sure. but, um, <laughs> a, a kid called Bill in my class who will forever be a hero to me just put his hand up and said, Sir, what's a homosexual? And um, <laughs> <laughs> then I had to unpick it. But I, I don't know if sort of education around divergent sexualities and genders has improved at all. Uh, can I... Like, mm, yeah. It's not just about what should be taught. I think people still don't get quite how regressive some of the education that is allowed to go on is, particularly in religious schools. I, I went to a religious school for a while when I, was, um, when I was about between 10 and 12, and I remember being in one of the kind of many, many compulsory religious education um, sections we, sessions we had and being explained with the book of Genesis um, 
why it was why in, in most situations, you know, women should defer to their husbands. This was like in, in 1999. I remember actually, I was, you know, standing up and saying, because I've always been difficult, um, uh, this isn't okay, this isn't, also, this isn't actually what it says. And, um, and, the, and, the, and uh, I remember the teacher said, um, well, all you boys, none of you marry Laura. It's like, <laughs> I, I'm 11. <laughs> so, so it's really weird. It was, it's the, the stuff that goes on and the stuff that it's, uh, I don't know. It, I, I just think people should not be, I think it should be classified as hate speech, this stuff. It's if we're going to have a competition, I went to a convent school and one of our <laughs> teachers <laughs> said, um, when I was growing up, I was taught by nuns that every period is God's tear for a lost opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why I'm an atheist. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, see. I went to a convent school, and it wasn't nearly as bad as that. So on that bombshell, another question. <laughs> Let's take one from up in the gallery, if there is one, uh, right in front of you, lady in the middle there. Hi, um, I'm Saive Sullivan. I just wanted to ask about um, something that didn't quite come up. It was touched on. Um, intersexuality and um, just homosexuality, especially lesbianism, just could you talk about that, please? <laughs> go. By all means, who wants to kick us off? Anyone? Why is everyone looking at me? I don't know. <laughs> well, you're like the representative from Planet Lesbian. I've, as got, much short, as I've got short hair. That's, <laughs> that's all we... we've got, I'm afraid. <laughs> I know, exactly. Um, I mean, I, do you, do you mean talk about political lesbianism? Because that's apparently coming back into fashion, a bit like bell-bottoms. <laughs> I didn't mean, poli oh. mean political lesbianism. I meant more like in relationship to intersectionality. You touched on, um, on race and on class, mm -hmm. but within um, feminism, I find um, that people who I know who identify as lesbian are very, very strident feminists in a very particular way and it is almost like I feel like even they're cutting people like me off who I'm also lesbian but just not I don't agree with their views so like how do you think that we can move on from that basically like how can you develop with that I think it's it's similar to what we said earlier that there can't always be consensus all the time mm. um and there are strands anyway I mean I know people, like I said, I know black women who won't call themselves feminists but call themselves womanists, and they have very, very good reasons for that. Um, reasons that, you know, you can read about online. Um, but but there, there, are, there is historical context to it. Um, I, I can't assume to, to speak for lesbian feminists because I'm not a lesbian and I wouldn't want to jump in and say something that is wildly off base. But I imagine when you say your views differ, I think that's to be expected. Um, and where possible, there should be more dialogue. I think a lot of the time we um, are looking out for ourselves in very narrow ways. And sometimes um, what is self-serving is not necessarily good for everyone. But just because something is self-serving doesn't mean that it's not true as well. So, yeah, um, I'm going to have to tread very carefully here because I could get myself into quite a lot of trouble. But um, if you've you know, followed the kind of historical tension between certain uh, lesbian feminists and certain trans feminists. Um, 
I think the most important thing we can do maybe is just recognize that all of the kind of concepts that I've just named, for example, are kind of constantly in flux, and that actually that's all right. Um, you know, we can continually shape and reshape our identities and have our own take on these kind of ideas and these labels. Um, and just kind of respect other people's take on them as much as possible, I think. It's, um, I don't know, maybe that sounds a bit kind of saccharine, a bit, um, bit hallmark, but um, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> how I feel. Um, I wonder if any of you want to comment on this idea that within a group there might be louder voices than others and the quieter voices feel like they're being drowned out. What do you reckon to that? Well, as, as the designated loudest voiced person on the panel, <laughs> I guess I should probably take... It is an, I mean, it's an enormous problem and it's something that, uh, you know, we should be... All of us on the stage should be reminded of fairly often is the fact that we have power through the fact that we get published, we get read by people. Um, mm. But I think there has to be a sense in which you say that you can't represent everybody. You can try and get more voices on. You can try and bring them in. But equally well, you can't try and... You have to try and speak on behalf of other people sometimes, which is a really difficult thing, I think, for the feminist movement to kind of deal with because so much of it is about trying to let people speak yeah. in their own voices. But, again, we're talking about people like low-paid workers. You know, there aren't any people here tonight who are working two jobs because they're out doing that job. So it's really important that somebody tries to speak for them. And I think that's, I think that is, you know, I think that's really, it's a really big challenge because we spend so much time saying, you're not representative, you know, you're only speaking for yourself. But actually, sometimes you do have to do a little bit of that. But it's how you do it and how you're aware of the power and privilege that you have in doing it, I guess. Laurie. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the... Helen is completely right. Um, <coughs> and uh, part of what um, myself and others were saying earlier about the problem of you know, feminism with a capital F um, being dominated by the voices of white, middle-class, professional writers who are heterosexual, living in the West, and cis, is that there is this issue of representation. So if you, uh, an interesting exercise to do if you, if you read feminist books for a hobby, like I think most of us on the panel do, <laughs> um, is, is to look at the introductions, because there is now a standard model for a feminist book, which is, um, and I guess, like, I think... Some of us have had to think about this recently. I, too, am writing a feminist book right now. So what you're meant to do in the introduction is there's this page you have to have where you add the disclaimer about, well, well, I am not a black woman or a lesbian or a poor person or somebody without a book deal or a column. Or, um, but, um, and as such, what it says, as such, I cannot speak for anyone else. And that's the disclaimer. But then, then they go on to, you know, extemporize from all from their experiences and say, well, this is what it's like for everyone. There is this sort of hegemonic, totalizing idea that if your experience is not like this, you are somehow failing as a woman, which is how class and gender really in interact in terms of oppression. They don't just go on at the same time, and it's very. Um, there's this idea that as a woman, particularly as a woman writer or as somebody who has a voice, you, you have to speak, you cannot, you're only allowed to speak for yourself and you have to always be talking about individual stuff. Um, but you also have to speak for every woman ever. So, so women's experience is both individual and trivial and it's all the same. 
it's this really interesting way of writing mm. off what women have to say, which I've been, I guess, thinking a lot about recently. I'm going to jump in and say, that's not new. I'm a black person. <laughs> and again, look, I said I'm not playing the oppression Olympics, but I know that when I speak, I am speaking for all my people, mm. as though we just had a black AGM and I've come with the minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so How did that go, by the way? It went well. Yeah, okay. we served chicken and watermelon. Oh. <laughs> um, it's just, it, there is this pressure whoever you are, I think if you're classed as quote-unquote a minority, there is always going to be this case of you're speaking for everyone. And that's impossible. Um, and I think the important things, I mean, look, I write for The Guardian as well as a New Statesman, so I've got all my left credentials marked. Um, and so I look and I see how many other brown faces there are, okay? And there's not a lot of us. There just isn't. And when I see other people, I mean, I've had, I get emails from lots of young black journalists and like, well, Bim, what can I do? And I have people also email me and they, the headline, the subject title in the email is, here's your next race story. <laughs> and I was kind of like, man, I want to write about films. Like, that's, that's my biggest joy, is pop culture. But then I understand also that there is a responsibility because I come from a working class background and I am African and I am British and I am all these things. So I understand that there is pressure, but there's also, I think, a certain amount of responsibility that I have whether or not I want it, it's similar to, well, not similar, this sounds so self-aggrandizing, but um, you know how people talk about Rihanna, and they go, but what about the little kids? And Rihanna's kind of like, man, I'm just a woman, and I like to have sex and do these things and whatever. <laughs> and it's difficult because on the one hand, she's very much her own person. She has agency, she's a grown woman, she can do whatever the hell she wants. On the other hand, listen, I've seen kids, and I was a kid once, I, had, I did the same thing with Madonna when I was a kid. She was everything. Um, so I understand that there is, there is a constant balancing act, I think, to be done where you have to give of yourself um, and acknowledge that it's not the universal, but then you have to tread the line and sometimes a lot of people fail and the key is to get up and try again. Um, yeah, um, having engaged in a project for the last few years where um, I was sort of motivated specifically by what I felt was the lack of trans perspectives in the mainstream media, um, I sort of got myself into this weird position where um, I kind of felt that I had to be very, very explicit about not representing all gender-variant people, but also not misrepresenting gender-variant people, which was a really, really hard line to tread. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that I frequently got that wrong. Um, and if I look back over some of my older writing, I kind of hang my head at certain generalizations I've made or, or whatever, or the way I've positioned myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the most important things that um, everyone on the panel can do as people who are writing for publications that take up a leftist position is be aware that one of our kind of functions as columnists is to kind of mark out the left limits of the mainstream discourse and I've always gone into pretty much every piece of writing I've done with that in mind and trying to think well how can I try and push the space further is there anything I can do rather than try to represent all gender variant people for example is there any way I can work 
that tries to maybe open up space for other gender variant writers. Mm -hmm. But I find that really interesting because, from my point of view as a commissioning editor, I want <coughs> to try and increase the diversity of voices we have, but you don't want to be, for example, I don't want to say, so, you're black, I've got a story about black people, do you want to write that? You know, and saying like, oh, let me get the trans writer to write about the trans issues, and people get put into these silos, and, it's, it, and that, I think, is a real struggle about... You want to get these issues heard more, but you don't want to pigeonhole people. And I'd be interested to know, what, Rand and Holly, what you think. Because you, uh, probably at most of us, you most narrowly kind of focus on feminism as a kind of subject. And do you ever worry that that means that you're pigeonholed, that you're just the go-to people for the feminist topic? I suppose we do kind of find ourselves pigeonholed that way. Not that it's the worst thing to be pigeonholed for. <laughs> but I do find, I think I really agree with um, Juliet when she's saying um, it's so much better to be opening up a space for more people to come in rather than trying to be um, totally intersectional in your own writing. Because so many people write what they know and that probably is the best kind of writing. And so you really need to have... You don't want to be tokenistic, obviously, but you need to have people writing what they know. And I found that sort of a very depressing offshoot in the feminist community was um, when Girls, the TV programme, got sort of consigned to the feminist dustbin because it was called Girls. And everybody was like, well, it's called Girls, and yet it's um, representing this very like narrow, middle-class, white, cis sort of variant of women, which it totally was. And um, that in itself is a problem. The bigger problem is that there aren't loads and loads of other programs that are also called similar things with um, a diversity in it. Because we're feminists and because we're women, um, we can't have the privilege of having girls. But nobody said that about friends. Nobody said that you had to have every single diversity of friendship. I did. That's something that Bim said about friends. Bim I know did. I've heard okay. <laughs> But she is rare in that, I will say that. Uh, it seems, yeah, to us, when we keep sort of having feminist stuff come to us, it seems like it just needs to be such a bigger space with so much more people in it rather than us. I hope that's a, a sign of how far we've come there. Because when I watched Friends growing up in Worcester, which was, let's face it, <laughs> not the most ethnically diverse place in the world, uh, it didn't even occur to me. And the fact that, I, that we've moved on to now th that that is an issue is itself hopefully a slightly hopeful thing. Mm. Yeah. Don't know. Mm. It's kind of what I was saying earlier, though, that I, was, I couldn't not see it. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember when Gabrielle Union guested in one of the earlier seasons, and then at the very, la the very last season when Charlie, played by Aisha Tyler, came on, and they had the same storyline. Both Ross and Joey liked them, and I was like, come on! <laughs> Two black women, and you give them the same storyline? Nobody else noticed, and I was just a seething, like, ah, oh, Friends! <laughs> Having like said that, Friends is one Sex of my favourite shows. I, I was telling someone last week, if somebody put a gun to my head, not that they would, and asked what my favourite sitcom was, I probably would say Friends or Frasier. Now, Frasier, that's another one. Love it to bits. But this is, this is the thing. As feminists, I think we're allowed to like deeply problematic things. And if I didn't, I wouldn't watch anything. And I love television like a sister. So <laughs> I would have no sister. So it's, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that yes, there are problems. Um, but lots of, I think what I find annoying is when people kind of tell us to not concern ourselves with that. Um, and I, I wrote about girls like almost everyone in the world um, <laughs> at the time. And the headline that my piece was given was, can a black girl relate to girls? Which is bollocks, because of course we can. They're human <laughs> beings. But I understood the, I understood the reason for it. It's, it's fairly link-basey. But, but I think what I was saying in that was, yes, girls is, is, uh, is, is, is 
problematic. But I think I wrote in there, it's also really quite good for all <laughs> yeah. of its nonsense, for all of this. And then the fact that Lena Dunham and Leslie Arfin and all these people said increasingly problematic nonsense on Twitter didn't help their cause at all. And kind of going, yeah, well, I only know cleaners or something along those lines. The only black people I know are cleaners. And you're like, shh, you're not helping yourself. <laughs> so there's a lot of... <laughs> people, I saw tweets, people saying that. And then I saw a woman, I think, on... Salon or Slate, don't quote me. And she said, well, of course there aren't any women in, any black women in Marnie's world, because how many black people do you see in art galleries in New York? <laughs> That's the correct response, people. <laughs> um, but that, this, is, this is the reality, is what I'm saying. So there are problems, but a lot of the time, I think lots of people just refuse to, I was saying this to Victoria backstage, sometimes people just refuse to engage, because in order to engage, they would have to examine themselves and they would have to agree that they were in many ways complicit with the system in which we all live. Now, that system works out better for some people and the people that it doesn't work out so great for tend to be very annoyed. Mm -hmm. And when they come on Twitter, they don't come with a genteel tone of, now let me tell you of my grievances. They come with an <laughs> F you this and all this that, which is understandable. It's not pleasant, but it's understandable. And I'm not saying because I've been at the end of some horrible things and I understand the, the stress of it, but I think the least we can do, as Laurie says, we have these voices, we have these platforms, we can engage where possible, and we can try. We can try, and we can improve. I think if we show a marked improvement every time, if we are looking, if we are questioning, if we are reading, if we are trying, I think people appreciate that. Let's take another question. Let's get some Lady at the back in the aisle there on the ground floor, with the scarf there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's really hard to identify people. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a great discussion. Um, one thing I've, I've noticed, though, is, I'm sure everyone's noticed this, just the lack of men here and the lack of men on the panel. Oh, fuck. Um, it's just a... <laughs> <laughs> but, really, but it what, is really important because men? some of the, the, the key issues that have been mentioned, so <coughs> sex education in schools, uh, reproduction through to sexual violence, um, domestic violence, sexual violence, these are all, I mean, this is not a one-way battle. It requires somehow drawing men into, this, to, into the discussion much more. And it's a barrier for me because any time I, you know, I've mentioned this event to male friends... Not really. It's got, they don't feel it's got anything to kind of do with them. Like, what's the part that they've got to kind of play? And yeah, so it's just that. that so how to how how what do you see as how to kind of break down that barrier? Because I, I do think it is still a barrier, and it's, I've noticed it at other events I've gone to that are about you know gender, feminism. It's just the lack of of guys that are around, basically. So how, think, well, how do you go ahead to panel? Helen right. first, because you put together the panel for this, and she'll have oh, something yeah. to say on that. First of all, I think you make a really good I was talking about this event to my sisters, who actually both don't live in London and work in the media, and therefore are normal people. Um, and they said, my <laughs> elder sister, who works as an accountant, said, well, it's fine, we have all this um, diversity training at work, but uh, the women turn up. It's just the women. And that's it. Like, diversity is, is like women's problem. And, and, and then, you know, nothing comes out because they've got no organisational support. And it's like, well, we gave you the chance. Um, and I think, that is, I think that is a really pro big problem. And, and we, at the States, when we have lots of men who write about feminism, when I came to put this panel together, I thought, I thought that, that we would get that question. And then I thought... I thought, fuck it. 
actually, is what I <laughs> And I'll tell you why. Um, because I, like, working in politics particularly, I'm, I get invited on as the token woman to be the, like, oh, no, we haven't got any women on this panel of blokes talking about it. Like, quick, get the woman. Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, actually, yeah, it probably would be fair if we had a man on this panel. But I thought, if anyone's going to be angry about it, I would first of all like them to be angry about all the all-male panels that I've sat through in my life. Um, and yeah, we should definitely engage men, but I don't think that, that necessarily the fact that they're not on, represented on this panel is, means that they're not welcome. Like, we very much made this an event that we wanted men to come to, um, and I'm very happy to have men writing about fem feminism, but if it's, it's a woman's movement, and it's got to be led by women. It, 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 you know, it, just, it, can't, it just can't be. Um, I would... Uh, well, look, I get this question a lot, and I think... Um, I've given, I don't want to be like an old hand, I've given quite a lot of feminist talks over the last couple of years and this always comes up, it's like, why aren't you appealing to men? Why isn't feminism appealing to men? It's like, because feminism terrifies men. <laughs> you know, you can't, you, like, I hear this all the time and I think people who aren't feminists hear this all the time, it's like, oh, you should just be nicer. You should, you know, we'd listen to you if you were just, if you just changed your tone a bit, maybe like, you know, crossed your legs and wore a nice dress and, and weren't so shouty and loud and angry. Why are you so angry? What have you got? <laughs> Seriously, like, and actually, why don't you get some men to talk about their problems? Actually, tell you what, men do talk to me about their problems, but they are afraid to talk about their problems because the gender system works us all over. Men know this. And actually, the bravest of them already show up. When people talk about appealing to men, they don't mean appealing to all men. They don't mean to appealing, appealing to the men who are already sitting in their bedrooms afraid to express themselves because gender and society is working them over. They mean appeal to the men in charge. Why can't feminism... Well, feminism has already worked itself over and half destroyed itself trying to appeal to the men in charge. And that didn't work, didn't it? <laughs> so... I think, really, I, I don't think feminism is about appealing to men. The men... Yeah, but no, I'm sorry, but it shouldn't. You asked, what are we doing to make this more welcoming to men? And actually, I think feminism is scary. There are some men here. <laughs> Okay, put your hands up. <laughs> hands up. Hands up. Yeah, Hi, guys. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Can, can well, I men are, one of the reasons men are a minority is that feminism is frightening. It's frightening. Gender politics are extremely frightening. I'm sorry, what? Can I, can I'm I sorry, say this something? is but feminist. Yeah, Rhiannon. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic because a couple of weeks ago, I was in a pub in King's Cross with um, one of the other girls who writes for the gender. She's called Ema O'Toole. She wrote a thing about body hair like a few months ago that, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, did really well. And we were, we were sat in the pub and we were there for quite a few hours and we were talking about feminism and, you know, putting the world to rights. We had two bottles of wine, maybe three, I can't remember. Um, and at one point, the waiter came over and he was, like, listening in on what we were saying. He was clearing away our English tapas, which is, you know, fish fingers, various other bits and bobs. And um, he went, I'm a feminist. 
And we sort of both turned to him, and he, he went, I know I don't look like a feminist, because I'm a waiter, <laughs> but <laughs> I am a feminist. And then he like got involved in the discussion, and he talked to us about it, and it was great. And then the next night, I went to a birthday drinks, and I was at this kind of birthday drinks. It was, there were mostly women there, and I was kind of talking a bit to some people I hadn't seen in a while about what I was up to. And this other guy came and joined in the conversation, and he said, I'm a feminist too. So I think it's something that I personally, in my, per, you know, in my social life, I'm seeing changing Men quite slowly. And I find it's... Victoria, you want to... I mean, I'm a straight woman and I have a male partner. And he's very reluctant. He agrees with a feminist viewpoint, but he's very reluctant to call himself a feminist. And he has... Um, I mean, there was one occasion he wrote um, a fe what what we both consider to be a feminist blog post. And he got absolutely flamed for it, for being a man writing about feminism yeah. and accused of mansplaining, accused of saying what women should want. Because, I mean, he was talking about what he felt men should be able to have greater involvement in childcare. Mm. And this was seen as wanting to control women's lives because childcare is a women's issue. And, you know, and, it, and it's very tricky to tread the right line because I, I can see where the, critical, the criticism was coming from. But obviously, because it was my yeah. partner, I was like, leave him kind of thing. <laughs> but, but he wouldn't call himself a feminist now because of it, because he doesn't want to see, like, to seem so he's appropriating a movement for, for women. And, and I kind of, I find that quite sad in a way, because, yeah. you know, I, I, I think mean, it is quite, it can be quite tricky to carve out a position that doesn't alienate people. Yeah, um, I mean, both of the guys that like I was talking to, like it was in a social environment, it was in a nice, relaxed environment, and we had a proper discussion about it. And it was kind yeah. of, you know, there was one girl in the discussion who went, "Oh, you're, are you a feminist?" and kind of got a bit kind of like, you know, you could see she. It was like a drawbridge came down, you know, because he was he was saying this and he was a man, and I kind of like tried to get yeah. them to talk about it, but not in like a confrontational way. And I actually think like part of it is just bringing it up in conversation more yeah. so that it doesn't become something that's, oh, you're a feminist. But it's the just normal, it's you're a feminist, and it's something that you might talk about, or you might not talk about it, and it's just, you know, it's natural to talk about it. I mean, I, think. Um, I had this, uh, about six months ago, I decided, I had, I often get men emailing me, right? With them, well, I often get men, men emailing me with rape threats and death threats and, you know, dis discussions of what my vagina looks like and what they'd like to do to it with a knife. This is what happens if you write, I'm sorry, like, but this is what happens if you write online. But I also get emails which are kind of lovely from, uh, there's two types of men who email me with these feminist questions. One of them are men in their first year at university or men who are around their age going, I think I might be a feminist. <laughs> As if, like, it, it's, it's like I'm a doctor and they've discovered this rash. It's like, is this, is this normal? Is this all right? I think, I think I'm like, what should I read? And, and I, do, I do try and answer because they're sort of adorable. And, and often it's about pornography in there. Like, I've heard this is really bad for you. Am I infected? Um, but then there's also the other half is from men in their, normally their 50s or early 60s, saying... I'm, I'm really worried about the way young men are talking right now. And I have, it's often men saying, I have daughters. This is what I think the world looks like for them. But it's secret. All these emails, they, they come across in this, like, it's like they're whispering in the back of the room. It's like, 
have you noticed? And so about six months ago, I put up on my Twitter, um, just would any, would any guys like to talk to me about sex and gender and feminism, you know, anonymously, you know, it has to be a, a you know, you don't have to identify yourself, and thinking like two or three people would answer. And I wrote a list of questions. I got 250 emails within about half an hour. I had to set up a, a new email address just to um, filter them all. And some of these people, they answered these, because they must have written 10,000 words. And these are people from all coming. Obviously, people filtered out by people who have a computer and read my Twitter at 10 at night or whatever, so that's self-selecting. But there were all kinds of different people. Men really want to talk. They really want to talk about this stuff. And I don't think that... I don't think that the interest isn't there. I think that it's not feminists and feminism that is giving the impression that it's us and them, that it's a battle. I think that is a lie sold to us and peddled to us by the mainstream press, which is owned and run almost exclusively by sexist white men who see women as a source of money. That's it. Um, I don't think that's our fault. And I also don't see it as our responsibility to make this more appealing and welcoming, because as far as I'm concerned, it is, if you want to learn, it is. <laughs> but I guess the other thing to say is that I would love to see a men's movement that wasn't the men's rights movement. <laughs> <laughs> because if you, once you stop this, you know, this kind of idea of the second sex, once you stop saying that people, that's men, and then there are women who are a separate extra category, then you can start to talk about some of the problems that affect men, some of the things like funding for male-specific cancers, mm -hmm. boys' attainment in school. Um, male suicide rates and mental health, I think, is a really big problem. The fact that men don't go and see their doctors, those kind of cultures about that kind of toxicness of what masculinity means, um, fatherhood and the problems of that. That would be a great movement, but I wouldn't say that that would be a movement that women should run. And I think that's, that's kind of got to be the, you know, that's got to be the way that it goes. If feminism has got to be led by women, and a men's movement would have to be led by men. Hmm. Um, I think we've got time for <coughs> one more question. Um, uh, lady over there on the side. Sorry, further down, sorry, at the front I meant. You, yes. Um, one of the things that's come up um, a couple of times this evening is um, about people who are first encountering feminism or who have learnt a little bit and then get put off learning more because they encounter people saying, no, you're wrong. And it's something that I've noticed a lot online as well in my in discussions with people. They, they, and, you know, my, my partner said that as well, that he's entirely put off getting into, getting into feminism because he sees the stuff that I get um, as when I talk about things. And um, I was just wondering if there was any suggestions that any of the panellists had for ways to make feminism uh, for us as feminists to encourage others to learn more and to improve their own understanding and their own relationships with other people without um, feeling that they have to um, hide their anger or become or be less themselves. So being approachable without compromise, is that sort of what you're... Kind, kind of, yeah. Well, I'll, um, I'll let, please don't kill me. No, um, who wants to weigh in on Can that first, Bim? Um, I feel I'm, I'm wary of monopolising this talk, which <laughs> it's a bit late for that now. But, um, oh. um, but I, I, I just, 
I think there is something... The first thing I can say, and this is similar advice to when I began working in journalism, and it was, I need for you, that's me, this is not me talking to you, someone said to me, I need for you to grow a thicker skin, which is useless information, really. But it, you learn to, to I think, when I first started out as a freelancer, I would send a pitch in the morning and then I would shut down my computer and walk away because if I didn't see the rejection, then it hadn't happened. Mm. It wasn't the smartest thing in the world. And over time, you get over it because you need to pay rent. Um, so I learned to just take the nose, take the, the sharp nose, learn to deal with the rejection. It's not always going to be sunshine and puppies. So I think there's a lot of people saying stuff like, oh, I'm, I'm really put off by these people, and that's completely fine, and that's completely reasonable. Um, I would say the, uh, the advice I would give then is to ask the question, maybe get flamed for it, state your position, but then after that, stop, walk away, and do some quiet reading away from that. Most people are talking as well as trying to listen, and sometimes people will be better served to listen for a while. I think a lot of people just keep digging and keep going, and then, understandably, they reach some level of resistance, and then it's all suddenly, what did I say? It's like, well, here's a paragraph of the shit you've said, mate. <laughs> so I think there is, that people need to listen more, talk a little bit less, and I include myself in this, and there are times when I, I often do my action asterisks on Twitter where I write, panic moonwalking away. This is not for me. <laughs> and you don't always have to have an opinion, and that opinion that you have you have to understand that it's very likely it's a wrong opinion. Yeah, I said it, a wrong, your opinion is wrong. <laughs> and I think a lot of the time you come into, people come, not you, I keep saying you, it's not you. People come into a discussion with, um, with this idea and they don't want it to be challenged, not really. And then when it is, they complain. And I think the people who, you know, take issue with that, understandably, like I said, are angry. So their response is not always exactly, you know, proportionate. That's all I'm gonna say. I mean, I, I, it's hard, is what I'm saying. And I don't think you can come into feminism like most things and expect it to just be smooth sailing. It's quite naive, mm. I think. But also that it's harder to take the attacks from your own side. I think that's mm. the problem. Like, I know the stage where I get mad sexists sending me stuff, and that's fine because I know that they don't like what I have to say. But the stuff that really hurts is from people who I want to respect me. Yeah. And that's the problem, is that those ones are the ones that sting because you think, I've, you know, I've lost your good opinion and I care about that. If someone is just a sexist knobber, then that's, you know, what do I care what they think? Mm. Um, and that's, that's really where you have to grow a thicker skin. And also that if you feel that... Um, if you feel that somebody is, has no interest in taking this conversation further, if they're just there for the fight, walk away. Because I read someone's Twitter bio, it's my favourite Twitter bio again, I'm going to swear, and I'm sorry, it said, it's just Twitter, it's not fucking oxygen, go for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> and that might be the best advice I've ever heard. Holly? I think <clears throat> in terms of like growing a thicker skin, I mean, that's obviously like a brilliant piece of advice for anyone going into journalism, but like when we started the Vagenda and it suddenly sort of took off, um, which we didn't expect at all. Um, and then we wrote a particular article uh, for the New Statesman that sort of name-dropped intersectionality, which made people really, really angry. We, um, at that point, had to send out a tweet saying, uh, two days after that happened, saying, can 
feminists, please stop comparing us to Hitler and stop saying that what we wrote is the equivalent of Mein Kampf. <laughs> because they, we actually had a tweet telling us, you wrote the equivalent of Mein Kampf. We didn't, uh, <laughs> just to clarify. Um, it's very, very not Nazi rhetoric. Um, but um, that sort of thing can be really difficult. And in terms of accessibility, what we try and do, um, obviously sometimes maybe we get it wrong with the, the gender, is um, be satirical when we're trying to be angry and accessible at the same time. Because I know with... Um, with like my family, for instance, who are all sort of staunchly working class, and I have two sisters who both hate the agenda passionately, and one of them told me that I started the agenda because I didn't inherit the big boob gene, um, <laughs> which, as I told Laurie earlier, was absolutely the reason. Um, <laughs> that's the kind of people we are actually trying to reach, and so doing our sort of humorous pink website is how we're going about it, really, because um, a lot of that feminist ire can be very terrifying, especially when you're being called Hitler um, by random people. Especially when you're a teenage girl as well, I think. Like, we get a lot of, like, 12, 13, 14-year-old girls who are just like, oh, my God, it's terrifying out there on the internet. I never say the right thing. I never have the right terminology. I never, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of regretting getting involved in this because people are shouting at me. I just think, as a general rule, don't be a dick to people. <laughs> and that's, you know, a good general rule for real life as well as on the internet. It's brilliant And, advice. you know, if, if people were, you know, sort of heeded that more often, I think we'd have less of a problem, really, in terms of <laughs> inclusivity. So, yeah, don't be a dick. Yeah, I, I was going to add that. I think another reason that sort of criticism from your own side can be the most difficult to take is that sometimes it's right and yeah. it, can really, it can really damage your ego and damage your sense of self. And I get quite funny about looking at... You know, I, I actually feel physically quite stressed at the thought of looking at comments on things that I've written. Mm. And not if it's someone who's really mad telling me I'm stupid. It's if it's someone who says something, I think, oh, God, that's right. And I think it's, and it's quite hard, because it, particularly if you feel very passionately about something like feminism, and it throws your view a little bit, you think, oh, my God, am I, am I wrong about everything? And you have this, like, existential crisis. <laughs> but, um, and it is something you have to really work on, and, and, and it's worth it, because often if your view is changed, there's a real value in that, and, and it's part of how you, people do work together more effectively, but um, I find it really hard. <laughs> well, I think we need to call it to a halt there because we need to let you all go home. But um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you to all our panellists. Thank you very much to Conway Hall. Um, and, yeah, thank you for coming and thank you for supporting this. And we hope to do something similar again soon.